Good morning, New Life Church, and to all of our friends joining us from all over the world. Uh, we are thankful that you could join us today in worshiping our Lord and Savior here in the Gulf region. So we have just finished a mini-series on congregational church government, but we continue in a new series this morning in the book of Acts, looking at the church. Uh, last week we learned that Jesus Christ loves the church, which is His bride, and He gave His life for her. And we learned that Jesus is the head of the church, and that He prophesied in Matthew chapter 16 that He would build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And today we start a sermon series from the book of Acts. Acts tells the story of the beginnings of the New Testament church of Jesus Christ and its development from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And it is a thrilling and challenging book because it is the account of real people taking seriously the command of Jesus to win others for Christ. Uh, Luke was the author of Acts, and we know about Luke from our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. He was a physician and the only Gentile author of the Bible. He wrote the book of Acts as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 as well as Luke chapter 1. I want to just start reading from Luke chapter 1, just the first four verses to help us remember the author and his intent. In Luke chapter 1, it tells us, Inasmuch as many had undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's in the very first verses of the Gospel of Luke. Now we turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, the first book is talking about the Gospel of Luke. So this is a sequel. He's writing now his second book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Please pray with me as we ask for God's blessings on his word today. 
Father, we do ask you to please teach us this morning. We pray for the Spirit of God to open our ears, open our eyes, open our, open our hearts to this passage today. And Lord, we pray that none of your words would fall to the ground. I pray for your help for me as I preach this passage. Inspire us, Lord. Convict us. Comfort us that we may be faithful doers of your word. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my father used to have a fantastic workshop in his garage, and I remember hanging out with him in his workshop doing repairs and, and woodwork, and he had all the tools that you could imagine. Unfortunately, one of my many excuses I still use today is that I do not have the tools that, that I need to repair things like my, my father did. Just this week, I tried to repair um, a pair of sunglasses that um, had broken and had been in my cupboard for over two years. And Sorrel wasn't here with me to help me fix this. And I was getting frustrated trying to use a knife and trying to use everything that you can imagine. And eventually I broke down. Well, <laughs> not um, emotionally, I just decided to go to Musafa and to buy the screwdriver that I needed to fix these sunglasses. And of course, when I had the correct tools, it took me one minute to fix these sunglasses that had been in my cupboard for two years. And when our Lord left this earth, he gave the disciples a very daunting task to make disciples of all peoples, which includes you and me. But Jesus did not leave his disciples without the tools that they needed in order to do the job of proclaiming the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of our sins. Our text here this morning reveals four essential tools for doing God's work. And to do Jesus' work, the church must have a solid foundation, the church must have sufficient power, the church must have a sharp focus, and the church must have a sure hope. Those are the four points that we'll be looking at this morning. So if you would turn with me to verse 1, my first point this morning is the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. We see in verse 1 to 3. And in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we see there the resurrection of Jesus gives us a, a solid foundation for our work. To do Jesus' work, the church must have a solid foundation or our house will fall. We see that from the parables. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the Ascension Day. And during our Thursday gathering at the, the TEC, uh, Robert preached a message for us showing us why the ascension of Jesus is important, even using this very text here um, from Acts chapter 1. 
And so Luke, the author, he emphasizes the facts. He emphasizes the evidence for Jesus' resurrection that he gave to his disciples over the 40-day period between his, his resurrection and his ascension. And Jesus gave the disciples many convincing proofs. And one proof was the visual. Of course, remember, he presented himself alive. And he appeared to them repeatedly, not just once. And if it had been on just one occasion, we could perhaps say or, or make excuses that it was just a vision or it was some type of a hallucination. But there were multiple appearances, some to individuals and some to whole groups. And it wasn't just on one day, it was over 40 days. And furthermore, there was the proof of his teaching. As Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 24, he puts it this way. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And besides this teaching and his appearance, remember Jesus ate with them as well. To prove that he wasn't just a vision. To prove that he wasn't just an apparition or a ghost or a spirit. He was in fact in the flesh. He ate with them. He gathered together with them. And they knew that he was, he was not a phantom when they saw him eat a piece of, of fish in their presence. When they touched him and they saw the scars and the wounds on his body. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus is really at the heart of the Christian faith. In fact, Paul says, if Jesus had not risen from the grave, our faith would be in vain. Our faith would be in vain. But it's not in vain, hallelujah, because Jesus has resurrected. Remember, Luke is writing this to Theophilus. But notice in the opening verses, Luke is trying to help Theophilus and us this morning affirm the gospel, to remember the gospel. We must see that there is a, a gospel to affirm. It's not whatever we formulate but it is an ancient message given to the apostles by Jesus Christ. This is the gospel Luke is trying to affirm to us this morning. There is only one gospel, and we must know it, and we must guard it to keep it pure. So this morning I ask you, do you know what the gospel is? We just had our baptism of four candidates yesterday, and what a wonderful experience it was listening to the testimonies of these people. And I encourage you to remember this afternoon after the live stream, we will be having our members meeting, and we will be hearing their testimonies. But how clear it was in their message, the gospel presentation. I mean, are you able to share the gospel with somebody? Do you know the gospel well? Whenever somebody becomes a member of the church, we ask them to present the gospel to us in, in two minutes. We want them to know that they can, well, we, we want to know that they understand the gospel and that they have accepted the gospel. But can you share the gospel effectively with others? We must proclaim to people that Jesus died for their sins, that he was raised from the dead. And that he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And that he is coming again in power to reign over all the earth. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the message about His kingdom rule are really the foundation of our work for the Lord. And the reality of the resurrection is a certainty in uncertain times. And it should empower us. It should encourage us as we remember that we are not serving a dead God, but a living God who is resurrected from the grave. It should encourage us to share and tell others the good news of Jesus. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. First emphasis there in the first few verses. We see from verse 4 to 5, the presence of the Holy Spirit. In order to do the work of Jesus, we need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is my second point this morning. We see in verse 4 to verse 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So the power that the disciples needed to be bold and to be consistent and to be effective in their evangelism was not their personalities, was not their education, was not their expertise. The power that they needed to share the gospel effectively was the Holy Spirit. What is this other promise of God that we see in these verses? What is the other promise that they were to wait for in Jerusalem? Well, remember in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, we read the following. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The reason Jesus told His disciples to wait for Him in Jerusalem was for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which was to coincide with the, the Jewish feast of Pentecost, which happened 50 days after the Passover. Before the Passover, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit empowered many of God's people, but He didn't permanently indwell every believer. And we see that even with Saul, how the Holy Spirit empowered him to do the work that he needed to do, to rule well and to go into battle and to be victorious for the sake of God's glory. But the Holy Spirit didn't stay with these believers. The Holy Spirit was there just to empower them. And that's all changed now in the New Testament. That all changed on the day of Pentecost. And unfortunately today, this, this is a little misunderstood. Some of the Pentecostals, they believe that we need to have a second experience of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not what the, the Bible talks about with this baptism. We the moment we are saved, the moment we are born again, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. We don't need a second baptism or a third baptism. We receive all of the Spirit of God on the day that we are born again. 
The day we are born again, we are filled completely and fully with the Spirit. It's up to us to yield to the Spirit. It's up to us to obey the Spirit. But the Spirit is there. He is there fully. And Pentecost, the day of Pentecost that we are looking at here, was a unique day in history. And the book of Acts is a history book. Some of us, some people, while we read in our Bibles, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But some people like to call it the Acts of the Spirit of God. And we see how He moves and we learn what He has done already. There is not a lot of doctrine in the book of Acts. We learn more history. And this is a unique day in the history of God and His church. It wasn't to happen again. God sovereignly was never going to repeat this particular occurrence of giving the Holy Spirit to the church of Jesus Christ. To indwell them. To live amongst them. To be with them permanently. That was a huge difference from what had taken place in the Old Testament. A huge blessing that the Old Testament saints never had. But I think although every Christian who has received the Spirit, we still need continually and repeatedly to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And that really is not the, the Spirit's responsibility. That is our responsibility. That is when we ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we have sinned and fallen short, sorry, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an epistle that is written to Christians, not unbelievers. Christians who sin need to repeatedly ask for forgiveness so that the Spirit of God can control us, so that the Spirit of God, so that we can walk with the Spirit of God. And of course, the result of that is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Galatians tells us we have the fruit of the Spirit, but it also compares to the works of the flesh. We have the fruit of the Spirit and we have the work of the flesh. A Christian should be known by the fruit of the Spirit, not by the works of the flesh. And the power of the Spirit that we need for witnessing is not just the power to speak clearly and to communicate boldly. We also need the help of the Spirit to live holy lives. Our godly lives are the foundation for our witness. Otherwise, we're hypocrites, aren't we? How can we live one way according to the flesh and then go and tell our friends and our family that Jesus loves them and shed His blood for them and wants us to live holy lives when, when our lives aren't reflecting that? Our lives need to reflect the holiness of God. We can't be living in the flesh. We need to be growing in holiness. A Christian wants to live their lives for God's glory, not disgrace to the name of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we are perfect when we are saved. And we looked at this when we studied uh, the, the letters of John. It's not about perfection. It is about direction. Our witness needs to bring glory to our Savior. 
I am saying that we must be walking in the Spirit. We must be seeking to please God with our lives and forsaking our sin, being disciplined. We cannot witness effectively for Christ unless we rely on the Spirit to produce godliness in our, in our daily lives and to use our verbal witness as we have opportunity. So in order to do the work that Jesus wants us to do, we need a solid foundation of Jesus' resurrection, and we need the power of the, the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, we see in verse 6 to 8, we need a focus. We need a sharp focus in order to witness. We need the power for witness. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the end of the earth. So the disciples here ask Jesus if it is at this time that he is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And he replies in the nicest way. He says, that's none of your business. <laughs> he says, your job is to be my witness in every part of the world. It's not your business to calculate all different types of prophecy and to know the future. It's your business to be my witness. In other words, and here's a very important application for us, our focus is not to be on prophetic timetables. Our focus is to be on the Great Commission. Our focus is to be on the Great Commission. And I think in this passage, commentators are quick to, to jump on the disciples for, for focusing on the earthly kingdom of Jesus, whereas Jesus' focus was on his spiritual kingdom. But we see that in the Gospels, but I'm not sure that's happening here in the book of Acts. Jesus did not correct them. He did not correct this notion that he would someday restore the kingdom to Israel. He didn't correct that. What he is correcting here is their concern about when it's going to happen. About when it's going to happen. So he's redirecting their, their focus to the great task of this present age. The great task of making disciples of Jesus Christ. The great task of being a witness of Jesus to the peoples of this earth. You know, recently, especially in the last year, there has been a lot of talk about the end times, especially since the COVID pandemic started. And this COVID pandemic has really affected every corner of the globe. I think only the, Ant the Antarctica is the only place in the world that hasn't ha had an infection. But this virus has caused a lot of fear and it's caused a lot of uncertainty. But I personally don't believe that this pandemic is the start of the, the end times. And I think too much worry and too much concern about the end of days is not helpful. 
And it's not even healthy to our, to our own um, psychology. We should not get so caught up with the views of prophecy and, and eschatology that we neglect the clear mandate of the Great Commission. You know, John Calvin, one of the reformers during the 16th century, he says, being caught up in the timing of these events is a damnable heresy. So it's not just our day and age. This happened in the 16th century. People getting caught up in eschatology. People being caught up in the end times. And the problem is when we get so caught up in thinking about all the details of prophecy and, and all the details of the end times, that we automatically lose focus on what we should be doing. We lose focus on the very purpose for what God has left us here on the earth for. And I think in all of us, in our natural human sinful tendencies, we want to search into the things that, that are only for God. Rather than trusting God, we want to take control. And Jesus here is saying to his disciples in, in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus' response is, don't worry. Don't worry about the things that are forbidden for you to know, such as the timings and the seasons of God's realized earthly kingdom. What he's saying is, don't lose your focus. You have work to do. We need to be busy with the work of sharing the gospel. We need to be busy with the work of sharing the gospel. Look at the end of verse 7. It says there, The times and the seasons have been fixed by the authority of the Father. Please underline that in your Bibles. The times and seasons have been fixed by the authority of the Father. The authority of the Father. I hope this response gives you comfort this morning. Not just the fact that, that history is under God's sovereign control and plan, but it is the Father here who is our sovereign. It is our Father who fixes the days and the times. Whether we live in an age of disease and pandemics, or whether we live in an age of intense persecution like the early church did, or whether we live in an age where there is great revival like the early disciples lived in, we can know that the loving Father is in sovereign control. He is in sovereign control control. And because He has all authority, we can go and we can be a witness without fear. Look at verse 8. He says to His disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. Verse 8 is the key verse to understanding the whole book of Acts. If you have a highlighter, underline that verse in your Bible. It really is the key to understanding the whole book of Acts. Here, 
is the mandate of the mission that we are to perform, even today. We are to be witnesses. Where? It's broken up for us. Look at verse 8. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses. And that phrase there also is, is throughout the book of Acts. In fact, that witness we will see another 39 times in the book of Acts. It's a major theme. And Jesus repeats himself over and over again so that we will hear. So that we will hear. But what is Jesus communicating here? Are we to go to Jerusalem and be a witness there? Are we to go to Judea and live there? What is Jesus communicating here? Well, remember, well, let me ask rather, where are the disciples going to be when they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, of course, they're going to be in Jerusalem. That's where they were. When they received the Holy Spirit, they were going to be empowered to do the mission that God wanted them to do. And they are to begin their work in Jerusalem. But the mandate is not for them just to stay in Jerusalem, not just to live in their holy huddle. They are to expand. They are to go out from Jerusalem. Judea is the province. So they are to go from the, the city to the province. Judea is the, the, the province or the region where the Jewish population was. So they were to reach their countrymen. But it doesn't just stay there. Then Jesus tells these Jews that they are to expand their witness outside of the Jewish region into Samaria. That's the larger region. This would be now them crossing over geographical lines, but also national lines, also racial lines, also religious lines, social lines, ethnic lines, political lines. Now they were to go where there weren't any Jews. Jesus doesn't stop there. The mandate is to take the gospel to the end of the earth, to every corner of the, the earth where Jesus is not named and where the gospel has not been heard. That's our mandate as well. That's our target. So to do Jesus' work, we need to do, we need these tools. We need a solid foundation. We need the power of the Spirit, and we need to have a, have a sharp focus on the Great Commission. But lastly, to do Jesus' work, we also need hope. We need a sure hope of the promise of His second coming. Look at my last point in verse 9 to 11. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the author Luke here is really briefly repeating the story of Jesus' ascension, which he told at the end of the, the gospel of Luke. And as his disciples saw the resurrected Jesus ascend into heaven, 
They are standing there. Their mouths are wide open in amazement, just in complete awe as they are, are witnessing Jesus' ascension. I believe that that cloud was probably the Shekinah glory of God. It wasn't just a normal rain cloud. That was the glory of God taking Jesus up into heaven. That must have been an awe-inspiring sight. I don't blame the disciples for standing there with their mouths open. I probably would have done exactly the same. But then, notice in verse 11, two angels show up and kind of shock them out of their, out of their trance. Notice what they said in verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back again, folks. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour when Jesus will return. But the angel's promise of Christ's return is, is a compelling and a powerful motive for us to be obedient to the work that he has given to us. We don't know when, but we do know for sure that he is returning. This is our sure hope. This is our guaranteed hope. This is not just a little child hoping that he will get a Ferrari for his birthday. This is a sure hope, a guaranteed hope that will come to pass. And this sobering reality should move us. It should move us from complacency to commitment. From complacency to commitment. It should motivate us from apathy to action. And notice how Paul put it in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When Jesus returns for his church, for his bride, we all will stand before him. We all will stand before the holy, righteous judge. We won't be judged for our sins because Jesus has been judged for us on our behalf. But we will give an account to God the Father for what we have done with what we have been given in this life. Will we be found faithful when He returns? We don't know when He returns. He might return tomorrow. That's not for us to worry about. What is important is for us to do the work, to be faithful with the tools and the resources that he has given us to be a witness of Jesus Christ. The task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth can be a daunting one. But the Lord in his mercy from the very start of this book of Acts is providing us with the necessary tools and the necessary resources to fulfill this job. It's up to us, New Life Church, to decide if we will appropriate these resources and put them to use. 
we make a few points of application as we conclude this sermon this morning. I think the main point, if you are a Christian, the fundamental resource that you need to be faithful in bringing the gospel to the world has already been given to you. We've seen that clearly. The Spirit has been poured out. You were baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit when you were born again. And He indwells you and He inhabits you. But you know, sometimes I worry that we have made the work of evangelism and the work of missions so specialized and so complex that we think it's only for the professionals. It's only for the professional missionaries or the professional pastors, those who get paid. That we fear that we could never be of service to the Lord in spreading the gospel. I wouldn't know what to say. I don't have enough Bible knowledge. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a, a missionary. I'm, I'm scared. And all of that may be true. But take courage this morning. Jesus ascended to heavenly glory in order to pour out the helper for us, to pour out the Spirit of God to enable us, to give us the power so that we might be His instruments in bringing the good news about Jesus Christ to your family, to your neighbors, to your work colleagues, to your friends, to the world. The message of the ascension really is a simple call to faith in the provision of Christ. You may not feel powerful, but the power of Christ has been given to you to do the work that is needed to do. If you're a Christian this morning, in the end, the question is not really whether you have what it takes to be of any use in the mission of bringing the gospel to the world. That is not the question. The only real question is whether you are willing to believe, to believe Christ's word that we have in front of us this morning, that the Holy Spirit can empower and enable and equip you to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ, to go with all your weaknesses to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, and I think all of us understand this in our predicament, in our situation over the last year. We have a powerful message to share. A message that will change people forever. In the face of all the pain and all the suffering in the world at the moment, we have a message from God that will bring hope, that will make a difference in people's lives. But the question is, are we willing to believe Christ's words that the Holy Spirit will enable us and equip us to do the work of being a faithful witness of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to be obedient and to be a witness of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Are you willing? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for these inspired words that have been left for us 
to learn from, to be instructed from, to be reproved from. We know they are inspired. And thank you, Lord, for recording these, these events in history so that we can remember, so that we don't just stumble around in this earth in darkness. But thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. And we pray, Lord, that we would be obedient to your word this morning, that we would not just be the, the hearers of your word, but we would, in fact, be the doers of your word, Lord Jesus, that we would be faithful witnesses of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the world that you have put us in here, in the Gulf region. May we be effective witnesses, empowered by the Spirit of God to reach the lost with this life-saving good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use us, Lord, I pray, for your glory and for our joy. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.